Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to be with us for this episode. The second episode of this week, bonus one because I missed last week due to travel and some logistical problems, is with the great Ben Golliver of the Washington Post. He and I discuss a lot of different topics, mostly in the Western Conference. The Clippers, especially in light of the Kawhi Leonard extension, the Warriors, the Spurs, the Lakers, and a few other topics that are of interest to us. Really good conversation brought to you by FanDuel. FanDuel.com slash Boston. New customers get $150 in bonus bets guaranteed when they place a $5 bet. Of course, a lot more on that later. Conversation runs just about an hour. Lots of really good stuff in here, and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure, Danny. It's a busy time of year right now in Los Angeles. you got the Clippers re-signing Kawhi Leonard to that extension. Apparently, they're having a, a big event over at the Intuit Dome next week. I'm, I'm sure they're going to be showing that thing off because it looks like it's pretty much done. Of course, the Lakers are in that annual like pre-trade deadline swirling of the toilet mode and starting to get a little bit choppy uh, you know, over at Crypto.com Arena with some of these recent losses. So uh, I feel like I'm, I'm neck deep in the basketball stuff right now, man. How are you doing? Doing well, and I'm very thankful for the fortuitous timing. Like we we had this lined up and did not know that Kawhi Leonard was going to sign an extension, which it appears was broken by the Clippers, not by any of the source reporters. Which I, I find that kind of refreshing, good, and and sort of on brand for Kawhi. And I wanted to know from your perspective: Do you read much into the timing here? Not only it happening now, but it not happening before and it not happening later. I do. I would also say not only did the Clippers break the news of the signing, they didn't want to officially confirm terms of the deal. And I think that's an out of respect to Kawhi's privacy type of stance as well. Um, the reported terms that kind of came out, um, you know, it sounded like Kawhi obviously didn't get the full amount on the years or the full amount on the money. I think that's part of the cause for the timing, right? Like, of course, Kawhi, you know, given his superstar level, um, you know, reputation is, is typically going to be in line for every last penny, right? And I think if you're the Clippers, you look back at the last four seasons coming into this year, and it was reasonable to want a couple of months to just see how his body looked, you know, two years removed from the surgery, um, you know, the knee surgery, that is, to see how he's meshing with the teammates um, who have kind of been, you know, in and out at various points. And, and obviously he didn't finish last year's playoffs, so you want to make sure he's kind of back from that. And then more than anything, I, you definitely wanted to have an experimental period with James Harden and to make sure that, um, that was going to be a match between Harden and Kawhi because, in theory, it didn't necessarily seem seamless, especially when you're coming off the offseason where Harden's the, the center of all this drama. But so far, I mean, like, what more could you want if you're a Clippers fan, right? Like, it was a rough first five games for Harden. They bench Westbrook. All the lineup stuff starts to make sense. They look good on both sides of the basketball. Kawhi, you know, pretty much had his best, best month in December probably the last three years, you know, in terms of productivity and and health and those kinds of things. And he's been out there almost every single night this year, which, of course, is the the most important thing when you're trying to weigh in an extension that's going to carry him through to his, you know, age 35 season. So you add it all up. um, The Clippers never wavered in their interest in Kawhi. That's one thing that was made clear to me. Like, they always really wanted him. They wanted to lock him down. And I think the timing was mostly about trying to find the right number and the right length. And what they landed on is actually beneficial in terms of being able to try to keep Paul George and to keep James Harden, which seems like it's been a pretty functional and pretty hunky-dory core. Those guys seem to like each other. They're playing well together. And so it seems like that's going to be what carries this franchise into their new building next season. It has been a distinctly different kind of thought process. Like I've had trouble conveying this sometimes to people where it's like, 
I fully expect Kawhi Leonard to be a Clipper beyond this year. But they're like, well, why hasn't it happened yet? And I'm like, well, there are a a few different factors. And I think you laid it out well. And one of the forces that I think was also driving this, just coming from the outside, you're obviously more connected with it than I am, is both sides getting an understanding of kind of where this was going. So you talked about the the fit of Kawhi and, and the health of Kawhi Leonard, but also from his perspective, you know, was this team something that was going to work out? And you're making a significant commitment where, I mean, I would think not only because of the injuries, but just because of everything that we're, we're in a post-prime Kawhi, though the month of December begs to differ with that. And so you're committing to the, like the rest. You and I have talked about the ter- term basketball mortality before, and you're committing to the rest of your like relevant basketball life to a franchise. And I think for Kawhi's perspective, even though he seems happy there and all the indications are there, I- I'm sure he'd rather do do it on a team that was competitive rather than in obscurity. Oh, totally. It's a great point, Danny. I mean, he obviously wants to see the franchise make a move like the Harden trade, right? I think uh, when we did our preseason podcast, you, me, and Kevin Pelton, I think we pretty much agreed the Clippers had a chance to be last in the Pacific, and that was before they made the Harden trade. And the idea was just like, look, they've got too much injury risk. Um, this team you know, doesn't necessarily have the stability. They could blow up uh, if somebody goes down, and it could get really ugly. What Harden you know, winds up becoming is a stabilizing uh, piece for them. I actually think he's a floor-raising piece, and the Clippers' ceiling is really going to be determined by Kawhi Leonard and Paul George once we get to the playoffs, right? But uh, for Kawhi, he's never going to be the guy like LeBron who's making all the headlines like LeBron did at last year's trade deadline, you know, talking about how he wants Kyrie and you know, all these kinds of power play-type moves. You know, Kawhi always moves in silence, but it doesn't, you know, surprise me at all that he would want the Clippers to make a move like the Harden trade, which clearly improved their talent level and their talent base, right? It definitely got them back into this title conversation. And, you know, he has every reason to be happy with how that's gone. It hasn't cost him uh, touches, shots, his numbers. You know, he's from Southern California. He clearly likes that aspect to his relationship with the Clippers. And I think there were fond feelings on both sides, but fond feelings uh, aren't going to make up for wasted seasons, right? Like, you don't want to be in the lottery. And now that they've gotten back to winning and they've proven they can be consistent winners, I think that's why the timing makes sense here. It also sets it up potentially so they can, uh, you know, get Paul George re-signed and set up to potentially get Harden re-signed as well. So, you know, to me, it's it's kind of a natural first block in what could be a longer-term plan here for the Clippers. It's natural to try to draw some comparisons to the awkwardness that happened in Brooklyn, where KD, Harden, you know, one of the three is the same, and Kyrie, they all were all extension-eligible at the same time, worth noting that Harden is not extension-eligible due to the structure of his contract. KD signs with Kyrie and, and Harden don't, and then all three of them are gone within, I think it was a year and a half from that point. And this does feel and seem different in part because all three are Southern California natives and in part because they've, I don't know, it seems like they're happier in in, in that respect. And also, like, it can be pulling in different directions. And so, for me, the Paul George piece is clear in terms of, like, his near-term future. Like, I would be stunned if he were anywhere else. And it's possible. I'm not going to, stunned does not mean 0%. It just means stunned. But this also potentially opens the door, and we already had some reporting from from Woj on this, for a George extension to get done during the season. However, because his contracts have generally lined up pretty cleanly with Kawhi's, it wouldn't surprise me to see that happen again. No, I, I think that will happen. I think George will sign an extension, and I think that Harden will re-sign once he's eligible to re-sign, you know, coming in, into the summertime, um, because... 
you know, Harden, as we saw last summer, didn't have a ton of options. Now that he's found one that's really working, I think he would be foolish to uh, look a gift horse in the mouse, uh, mouth, right? I think he should just take it and run. You know, whatever they're going to offer him, I'm sure it'll be a sizable uh, chunk of change. It makes a lot of sense for him to stay. Look, there's a lot of comparisons between the Clippers and the Nets in terms of like, oh, we're the little brother team in these big markets. But I do think the Clippers have a better ownership group, a more proven ownership group with Steve Ballmer. I think they have a better front office, a more experienced front office with Lawrence Frank. I think they have a better coach with Ty Lue as well. And I just think that they have actually created a more stable environment despite a lot of injury issues here over the last few years than what was going on in Brooklyn. It just always felt like the organization of Brooklyn was being run by its most enigmatic personality, which was Kyrie Irving. Everybody else was just kind of like following in his lead. That's not the, the way it really should work, right? Especially if you're having so many issues off the court. And so I think for the Clippers, like, yeah, their players have seemed happy, even when they haven't been competing for titles. You've got, uh, you know, Paul George getting into the media sphere with his podcast here in Los Angeles. His parents are at practically every single game sitting courtside as well. So I think the family ties mean a lot to him. And then for Harden, it's been a chance to get back to focusing on basketball without intense scrutiny on his every single move. I think we saw that, you know, towards the end in Houston and in Brooklyn uh, because of the New York media and also in Philadelphia because of this idea that Joel Embiid needs to get over the hump. Like Harden was set up as the fall guy. And, and honestly, he played into the, that, uh, you know, that stereotype as well. I mean, he didn't do himself a lot of favors, right? But it, with the Los Angeles Clippers, have we been seeing a lot of negative James Harden talk after the first five games uh, and once they got things on track? No, I, I think most of the time the Clippers are flying under the radar in Los Angeles because the Lakers just dwarf them in terms of interest and attention. So that's actually been a good thing for James Harden. In, in a weird way, it's kind of been the same deal for Kyrie in, in Dallas where you know, he's not making waves. He's not making these crazy headlines. He's just kind of getting back to basketball. And I think that's what both those guys needed at this stage of their career. And especially if you were like their accountant or their agent and their lawyer, that's exactly what you would tell them <laughs> to, right? It's just like, yeah. just, ho- just who, you know, like there's a lot of money at stake here. You can make yourself some real money if you just go out there and do what you could do. One of the other key factors in, in this, and it's such a difference from where they were, is like, I'll use cleaning the glasses version of net rating, but when Harden, Kawhi, and Paul George have been on the floor together, and as you mentioned, that is only part of the pitch here because the idea of Harden being a floor raiser in the non-PG, non-quad minutes, Clippers have a plus 10.8 net rating. Like They are crushing teams during yep. that time. And that not only gives you latitude in the rest of the game, that they've done that in different concepts, even if the roster is not as fluid as it was before because they have so many bigs now and everything else. And I wonder about certain elements of how this group will fare in the postseason. But when you consider where they started and when you consider where the kind of where the discussion lines are and like what the thresholds for success are, being a dangerous regular season team when you can't evaluate the playoff yet is a very positive sign. I, I mean, I, I don't think the Harden trade could have gone better for them than it has. And the reason why I say that is, let's go through the alternate history of they don't trade for Harden, so therefore Westbrook is playing a much more central role in bigger minutes. You know, he's starting with Kawhi and Paul George, and those lineups when it was, you know, those three guys instead of Harden and the two wings were never nearly as good as this current trio is, right? 
So now you're in a situation where, okay, if you're barely fighting for the play-in, maybe you're on the outside looking in, do you have to start considering trading a Kawhi Leonard or trading a Paul George rather than extending them and try to retool your team so you have something to pitch to your fans once you move into the new building? I do think the opening of the building, it really puts some time pressure on this entire situation, right? It's like you have to get it together and have some people who are going to put some butts in seats because... Steve Ballmer has been, you know, uh, you know, basically bragging or, or predicting for five years that they're going to have this very loud building with that wall of noise and all those, you know, season ticket holders that he expects to be yelling and screaming and creating this great home court atmosphere. None of that exists at Clippers games. Like, you go to Clippers games yeah. now, it's pretty quiet. I mean, they have to manufacture all the noise themselves. They have a great game off staff and, you know, the, the mascot's funny and everything else. But the vision for what Steve Ballmer wanted his team to be requires legit star power and people who are going to be able to kind of uh, – you know, drag fans across L.A., you know, from downtown out to Inglewood and watch these guys actually play next season. And so uh, Harden has really given them all of that life. Now, we always have to say, how long is he going to stay happy? How long will he be content? It's a completely fair question. But betting on James Harden in a contract year is actually not that bad of an idea because he has a ton of motivation to play well, uh, to, you know, fit in with the co-stars, to not make waves because he wants one more big contract. And there's nobody better position from a financial standpoint than Steve Ballmer to hand out contracts that might wind up being a year or two too long or a little bit too generous, the kind of deal that we might look around and say, hey, that, that's a little bit too rich for my blood. It doesn't matter. I mean, Steve Ballmer is by far the wealthiest owner in the NBA. He could pay whatever he wants to anybody uh, within the cap rules. And so I don't think he's going to have any hesitation uh, to keep this train rolling next season. It's an extremely important point, and ownership is the biggest competitive advantage in the NBA, and that isn't entirely willing to suspend. And something I want to give Steve Ballmer a lot of credit for is the stability of the organization, and that can be a problem. I mean, I talked for years about how I thought part of the the story of the not the this is now two collective bargaining agreements ago was that it, like things were too open, everybody was hitting for agency, KD in 2016, most famously. But it was just that all of the big market teams were poorly run at that time. Some of them are still poorly <laughs> yeah. run. And so they weren't able to take advantage of it. And the Clippers missed that window, but they they have this and so with Lawrence Frank and with Ty Lu and Stability isn't always quality, but I think that generally speaking, they've done pretty well with both and having an owner who's willing to spend, but also being willing to retain or not retain important people, depending on merit, is extremely important too. Well, I really do think their their identity in Los Angeles plays to that as well, because you saw Darvin Ham's quote recently where he was kind of lecturing everybody about like, hey, we don't need to live and die with every loss. Like this is a marathon season. I mean, honestly, that kind of was cringy to me because it's like, well, don't you want your fans living and dying? Isn't that the sign that you have an invested fan base? Wouldn't any professional franchise just kill to have fans that live and die with every game? Don't we look at the best teams in the league, whether it's like the Celtics, the Lakers, you know, historically the Warriors, and say, like, they have the most engaged and passionate fans, and that's how it should be. Um, but, you know, we're seeing the downside to all of that engagement right now, which is like any time Darvin Ham changes his starting five, he's got to run it not only by the players, not only by the front office, not only by ownership, 
but by a fan base that's just like, you know, ready to just freak out on him if it doesn't work out. Similar thing for Steve Kerr. I see this guy just catching shots all day long on Twitter about, oh, is he playing Moody enough? Oh, is he playing Kaminga enough? Why is he trusting the veterans? And so on and so forth. Like, that is a really destabilizing um, relationship when things go south. And the Clippers, by and large, have avoided that because they just don't have that level of attention. And, you know, that also plays into the personalities of their key players. Like Ty Lue uh, is never going to be, you know, making crazy waves. Obviously, Kawhi is probably the most silent superstar we've ever had in the NBA. I would say even more silent than Tim Duncan. Paul George, you know, he does the media thing, but to me, he's more talking generally about the NBA. He's not exactly trying to, uh, you know, take shots at anybody or, you know, really make headlines there. And everybody gets in line behind those guys. And you've even seen it with Westbrook and Harden, who I think have lived much more drama-free existences with the Clippers than they did in their previous stops. And so you add all those things together, um, you know, it's I don't want to say it's perfectly kumbaya because they've had some pretty, you know, tough postseason exits, you know, certainly before that they were hoping, uh, you know, like last year with the injuries against the Suns. And, and of course, the bubble was a disaster that led to some changes. But uh, I think by and large, they've settled into this identity of just like, hey, it's kind of just about the basketball. We clock in, clock out. You don't have to look at this team for a bunch of headaches. And it's really working for them. The other kind of element of this story that I think is really interesting with with Kawhi Leonard is it clarifies something that seemed like it was already going in this direction, which is I had like it's funny I was working on pieces at various times for the Athletic and they're like talking about who has cap space. I'm like, well, there is this idea that the Clippers could theoretically like turn it all around and change and change things significantly. I mean, they don't have outside of their main guys, they just don't have that many salaries on the books. It never seemed likely. And we brought up how it, Kawhi, the stability there makes it more likely for PG and for James Harden. But the other point I wanted to make before we move on from the Clippers was, while that was possible, not only due to their first-round pick obligations, but also due to the kind of the structure of the team and moving into the Intuit Dome and everything like that, it was always more possible than probable. And clarifying it, I think, ahead of time will be very good for them. Yeah, well, I, I think that this is the path that they would always prefer. This was their plan A. And if you look back, actually, to last summer, you'll remember Michael Winger left the Clippers. He was like a very valued sort of deputy executive to Lawrence Frank, and he left the Clippers to take the Washington Wizards job. And I did an interview with him, uh, you know, I think it was his first interview, actually, after he got hired by the Wizards, where he was explaining why he, you know, wanted to leave a team that was established contender, or at least established playoff team with superstar guys in place to go to a Wizards team that obviously needed a lot of work. And, you know, he said about trading Bradley Beal and kind of overhauling the roster, trying to set up a longer-term rebuild. And he said, you know, kind of point blank, like, what gets him excited is being there at step one, not seeing the finished product. He wants to be the guy who builds. He actually kind of compared it to playing with Legos and the idea of, like, opening those first couple of bags and that being the magical moment, as opposed to, like, putting the last piece on the on the puzzle and, and standing back and looking at the final product. So for him, I think he viewed the Clippers basically as steady as she goes. Maybe they're going to trade for a Harden because that had been rumored for months, right? But there wasn't going to be a major shakeup. He was looking to try to get his hands dirty. And when an executive makes that kind of, uh, you know, personal career choice, I think we should all kind of sit up and, and take notice, right? Because this is a guy who's had other opportunities. He's somebody who's been, um, you know, floated around as a possible, uh, you know, head of basketball operations in different spots. 
And he was essentially saying, like, I don't think there's a lot of more work to be done here with the Clippers. Like, they kind of are who they are, and they know who they're going to be these next couple of years. I do think there's alternate worlds where they don't trade for Harden or the Harden trade doesn't work or one of these guys gets hurt where the whole thing crumbles and Steve Ballmer is really scrambling and they have to go to some very extreme backup plan. Like, I think those kinds of deals were on the table, but... Um, you know, so far they're on track to be where they want it to be. It's something I've wondered about in the context of Bob Myers, which is, I mean, we don't know what Myers wants for his next step. Maybe he's going to do media for a while, entirely possible. But the Clippers have been, I mean, there are rumors loud enough that I can hear them, and that usually means they're pretty loud. And right. I don't know that that's the type of job that would interest him. And it's it's probably more fun than where the Warriors job is, and I'd like to talk about them briefly at some point in this conversation. But it's not that much. And the idea of it being stable, it makes sense that Michael Winger made the decision he did. And it also makes sense that other people would value that stability and value working for, for Balmer and everything else. And so it is... You're right. It's a great point. It is really telling that Winger made the decision he did, especially considering things look more certain now than they did before. But yeah, I really love that you brought that point up. Well, the, the Myers thing is really interesting, too, because how did he make his name? Like, he just actually got hired as a consultant, basically, for the Washington Commanders. And I think his pitch to the commander was, was probably, I've been around consistent winning. I got my hands dirty to help mold this culture. I know how to manage up with ownership, but also manage uh, you know sideways with coaching, but manage down with play, uh, players. You know, sort of being that Draymond whisperer type figure, he's got the communication skills, the experience, and kind of that upbeat personality to turn around a Washington Commanders team that's just been a complete train wreck for like 20 years, right? So the fact that he's interested in going to the commanders and, and that opportunity is even worth his time makes me think he's of a similar mind frame to like a winger where just going to be a steward of an organization that's already put together is probably not going to really excite Bob Myers, right? Like I'll bet some of his most fun times with the Warriors were those early couple of years where it's like, oh, well, here's Steph Curry. How do you build an optimal team around him? How do you build optimal strategies that are going to pull the best out of him? Uh, how do you make sure Draymond doesn't cost you a championship by knocking LeBron below the waist, right? Like those types of questions that are more formative questions, I'll bet you are some of Bob Myers' fondest memories. And, and by the end of it, he looked a little bit exhausted. And I think he was dealing with the same old challenges of like these players are getting older. We don't have a ton of flexibility to make trades. If we do make trades, we're going to look so radically different that it's going to be almost like a, a different organization if you trade players like Clay and, and Draymond, right? So um, it, it actually makes sense in hindsight to me that he was ready to kind of you know quit while he was ahead, so to speak, and just kind of call it a good run. And I bet you know that next job that he would take, one, I think he would have a ton of authority, you know, based on his reputation and his track record. So he would have a lot of juice with the owner and uh, you know a lot of consolidated power. Uh, but two, I'll bet you he would prefer a job that looks a little bit more like, say, the 2013-14 Warriors than looks like the 2024 Clippers. That would just be my guess. I agree with that. And it's possible that maybe in a few years he'll be interested in a different challenge. And there are a lot of the other structural amounts that were really strongly in favor of the Clippers, where you have that owner, it's in a city that he has a deep personal connection to, where he lived for a long time. But it isn't the kind of challenge that I think would be really interesting. And so if you have the choice to 
do more. And like people ask, you know, in, in my chats and everything like that, oh, what job would you take? And it's like, it's never a job like the Clippers job as much as the other elements are in place. It's, you know, a, a more open book. And I, 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 you know, like for me, like my number one job probably right now, if I could get any of the 30 would probably be the Spurs. And they're a long way off, but they have, they have a key piece and they still have a lot of room to, to develop the rest of the team and their identity and everything else. The NFL season is wrapping up, but there is still time to get on the action with FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers get 150 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet. That's 150 bucks in bonus bets, win or lose. The app is so easy to use, and there are so many different ways to bet, like live same-game parlays, find bets in the new Explore tab, pick a parlay in the Parlay Hub, the best way to find popular parlays, and more. So visit FanDuel.com Boston and make your first bet a layup. FanDuel, official partner of the NFL. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, Kentucky, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net in West Virginia or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts, or call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in New York. Before we get to the Lakers, I would actually like to talk about the Warriors. And you're... So it's been interesting. Nate and I have been discussing it. And of course, I'm geographically close to to the team. I, I attend most of their home games. But I wanted your perspective as somebody who is connected, but also less day-to-day with them, what is your read both on the kind of the, the temperature from what you can he, from what you can discern of the organization and just the overall kind of situation? Well, everybody looks pretty unhappy and they sure sound pretty unhappy and the body language and press conferences and on the court suggests to me that changes are coming before the trade deadline, right? Like I, I it feels untenable. I, I mean, I've seen uglier situations that had to be resolved, right? Like I mean, <laughs> Russell Westbrook on the Lakers wasn't that long ago, right? Um, but they've got to make some moves. I thought that Steph Curry handled and kind of brokered peace between uh, Jonathan Kaminga and Steve Kerr uh, exquisitely. I don't know if he got enough credit. You're, like you said, you're closer to it. But his ability to stand up for Kaminga while also kind of trying to hold the line for the organization's uh, expectations, I thought he handled that really, really well. And that's a tricky spot. And I think a lot of superstar-level guys, they might leave a younger player who's asking for more and doing it publicly they might hang that guy out to dry. And I was really impressed that Steph didn't do that. 
Um, you know, it, it goes back to that rep, uh, you know reputation of being collaborative. I thought it was very collaborative leadership in that particular spot, but that doesn't solve the problem. Uh, they're too old. They're too small. I don't see them going anywhere in this year's playoffs. I think it's time for a little bit of a retool. And I think, you know, this is kind of a moment for Dunleavy to put his stamp on stuff. And we don't really have a feel for what his personality as an executive is going to be. Is he just a holdover? Is he just doing the owner's bidding? Uh, you know, does he have his own philosophy about what the team should look like or what the team needs? I don't think his voice has been loud enough, and I don't think he can let the trade deadline pass without giving us a better sense for what his priorities are and what his goals are. And, you know, obviously he needs to answer to Steph Curry first. Like, they need to be on the same page in terms of what do the next two or three years look like to get the Warriors back in position where they can really, you know, be playing for something. Because the season has just been a disaster. I mean, to me, the Draymond stuff was, you know, basically unforgivable considering the circumstances and how many extra chances he had. Uh, I think they should work him back in slowly. I don't think they should be rushing to give him back what he had. I would be making him earn it. And, you know, he owes his teammates based on how he let them down by getting himself in this particular situation. I thought his whole deal about, oh, I'm coming back and retiring was a complete joke. You know, yes. oh, Adam Silver had to talk me into it. Dude, get out of here. I've never said cool story, bro, faster than when I saw that clip going around the Internet, Danny. It's just completely unnecessary fading the flames and making things about yourself when it needs to be about the team. And for so many years, Draymond was about the team, and he's just kind of lost sight of that, and it bothers me a little bit. So, um, you know, major challenges, but the guy who I've really circled here is Dunleavy. And I was curious, do you have a better sense for, like, who this guy is, or is he still a blank slate waiting to kind of put his stamp on stuff? He is a very blank slate for me. Uh, I, I I haven't really interacted with him much. Like his rise within the organization actually kind of kept him to some degree out of my orbit. And I mean, I'm not not that I was particularly close with Bob Myers, but like the identification and the 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 evaluation with Dunleavy and I think Joe Lacob is going to be central to this too, because you have these competing forces which are. Hey, this team, you know, they, they won a championship in 22. They still have Steph Curry. And even though he's taken a significant step back over the last six weeks to where he was before that, still a very, very good basketball player, at bare minimum. And so you have these competing ideas. And then the other looming thing, and this came up a little bit in our conversation about the Clippers, is their overall spending. And it is significantly more tolerable, not only because Steve Ballmer is much wealthier, but also because the Clippers are much better. I mean, they're currently fourth in net rating, and they've been better recently than they were in the beginning. So for the Warriors, you have these different ideas, and it's a lot to reconcile. And the other, the, the awkwardness, and, and you, you touched on this in a different way, which I think is very important, is they've played poorly. And it is reasonable to believe that keeping things together, that they would play better, specifically Andrew Wiggins, who has been awful in the beginning of this year. The challenge, though, is would that be accepted by the people involved? And I don't know the answer to that. Now, Steph is probably just going to do, say, be, be his, uh, publicly be that, be the person he's always been. Privately, we don't, we don't really know necessarily. But at the same point, I think that there's a distinct risk that most of the moves that the Warriors could make either weaken their long-term position or actually don't make them that much better in the short term. So, for example, trading 
trading a couple of future resources like either young guys or picks to upgrade on to try to get somebody more like what Andrew Wiggins was before this year. Well, first of all, those guys are hard to find. They're going to be really expensive and they they can fall off too. So you have that or but but the but the practical consideration is just if things are going this badly, is the status quo even possible? And is done does Dunleavy slash Dunleavy plus Lacob do they have enough heft not only with the players but with Steve Kerr to if they even wanted to hold firm to do so? Yeah. So uh, one thing I look at when I uh, when I see the Warriors track record in, in terms of like how they managed after the 2019 season and then how they put that 22 team together. They were never in, hey, we suck, so let's slash and burn and cut our payroll mode, right? It was much more about, like, how can we roll over contract A to, you know, take on a player with with contract B that's similar but who could maybe help us better, right? So, like, the whole D'Angelo Russell interregnum, right, that that idea – this Chris Paul trade, you know, the Jordan Poole thing, that felt like a similar um, move in mind, you know, potentially like it's not really an end goal. It's kind of a, a half step towards whatever would come next, trying to find a better long-term piece for them than Jordan Poole was after the, the whole fiasco with Draymond. So if I had to bet what they would do, I don't think that this would be some sort of a sell-off where they try to get themselves, you know, just save a whole bunch of money and, and play for tomorrow. If I had to bet, it would be, okay, who can we actually move for reasonable value, taking some money back, um, while giving ourselves, you know, increasing our title odds this year, which wouldn't be that difficult because their odds are pretty low right now, but also potentially setting the blueprint for, you know, a little bit more of a meaningful run next year. I think the challenge with that is you're right, like trying to include either like Clay or Wiggins in those types of trades is probably unrealistic. So for me, I, I wonder if the, the moves would actually be centered around Chris Paul's contract, one or two of the young guys, whatever else they can kind of, you know, put together around the edges. I wonder if that's actually what they would be working with um you know, at the trade deadline, and that would give them a little bit more time to just pray that Wiggins, you know, gets back to normal and kind of progresses to the mean, so to speak. I'm not sure you can expect that much more from Clay. I think he is who he is, but you don't necessarily, you're not going to get anything for Clay, I don't think, at the deadline. So I think their options are somewhat limited, but I don't think this is going to be a situation where they drastically cut costs and, you know, try to take a different tack because, you know, the, the Clippers are another good example of this. Like when they did that Norman Powell trade, like they took on so much future money with Norman Powell, right? Well, that's given them a really helpful player here who complements their stars uh, pretty nicely. And had they not been willing to take on that future money and had they kind of trimmed around the edges when they weren't as good a couple of years ago, well, um, they wouldn't be in a spot right now where, you know, we're saying that they're one of the best teams in the Western Conference. So I would expect the, the Warriors to play things, you know, pretty similar to how the Clippers did a couple of years ago. What do you think? I think you're right. And there has to, uh, the the force in this that I think is most compelling. I brought up the idea of the different voices in the room is Lacob because he has been consistently optimistic on their young guys, and right. So I could imagine him being the guy who's tapping the brakes a little bit more on like moving Kaminga or I don't know uh, Moody. It wouldn't surprise me if he's somebody who believes in Moody, and then it seems like Pajemski is probably not going to be involved in stuff unless it's a, a really helpful move. And so maybe he's the guy who like they they get this offer of like flashy player X who isn't actually that good, but it's going to cost them Kaminga. And he's like, hey, now, like let's Kaminga could be really good here. And with the additional uncertainty now with Draymond Green, Kaminga fills a more urgent role and with Wiggins, to be honest, like 
do you need a defensively capable player who can give you some juice offensively, even if Kuminga does it very differently than Draymond in particular and Wiggins to a lesser extent? So that could potentially be there. But I also think that the motivation to do something beyond like a minimum signing or something like that is palatable enough. And, and the other question, and, and it's funny because like I have a lot of friends who are Warriors fans and everything else, is like, it's possible this resolves with the passage of time because, you know, most deadline deals don't happen right now because teams are evaluating and everything else. And so maybe two, three weeks from now, things look a little bit better. Maybe Draymond recovered and maybe then it becomes more palatable to, to hold the course. But I love that you brought up Chris Paul because I think Chris Paul is the centerpiece not of the Warriors, not of their books or anything else, but of understanding what direction they're going in financially and kind of from a talent perspective as well. Because Paul has, it's not a team option, it is a non-guarantee for the 24-25 season. What that means from a practical perspective, and yes, you could do a Danilo Gallinari style where you partially guarantee it to facilitate the trade, but more likely, if there's that D'Angelo Russell interregnum moment, the transition point from that should be this deadline. And so to me, it is not definitive, but it is likely that if Chris Paul makes it through the deadline on the Warriors, that their decision in June, July is, do we keep Chris Paul probably at that number or do we shed that salary? And so to me, if Chris Paul is still a Warrior at the All-Star break, we might be looking at a circumstance where the Warriors are not only ducking the second apron, but depending on what Clay is willing to do and how they feel about that, they might not even pay the tax next year. So that would be wild. I personally think Chris Paul will be traded by the deadline. That's I do just too. my personal opinion. Um, have you given, I'm sure you guys go through every trade scenario, but have you thought about him to San Antonio with something for like Keldon Johnson? Like, have you given that idea any thought from the Warriors standpoint? Sure. I, I think that one of the benefits for the Warriors is that they can they can go in a lot of different directions with that, depending on how much ownership is willing to pay long term. It's not as even as much about this year. Like some of those moves would like if they theoretically did a move built around Keldon and Chris Paul, the Warriors would actually save a lot of money in that move. But Keldon Johnson's making roughly eighteen million descending contract after this year. So that is a possibility, but then how interested, so San Antonio, from that perspective, they're going to want some resources to make that happen. They like Kelton Johnson. Kelton Johnson has had better success in some ways than he has this year. So, and they are, their books aren't impacted. It's not like they're the Hawks or the Wolves or something like that, where they like kind of have to make a move to be solvent. So I, I think that that's intriguing. I think that, I mean, there's been some conversation about Pascal Siakam, who I personally think is a terrible fit. For the Warriors, not only even from the financial perspective, but just like the the where the ball is in his hands. Now, defensively, wonderful fit, of course, because he's he can be very talented on that end. But I think that whatever the end result is, one of the things that Mike Dunleavy will do is have a an extremely large amount of conversations. And seeing what's on the table, he will bring all of that to Lake up, and they're going to be considering all of these different elements, the financial part of it, how much better does it make our team, how much, and how much does that improvement really change this season and next? Like, to me, part of the problem with making a wholesale change is like, okay, let's say the Warriors get five wins better over the rest of the year, which is a huge improvement. That would be like, that would be a stunningly successful trade. They're 17 and 20 right now. That kind of a move would probably, depending on where the next two weeks go, 
like that makes you like maybe the seven or eight seed. And we saw Miami last year make it out of the play-in and make it to the finals and everything else. But is that enough? And, no, not in the West, though. I mean, that, you know, yeah, that's the thing. Like, exactly. You're never going to be. You're never going to be able to escape the Western Conference like that. I feel you're right back where you were last year in your scenario. If you're adding five wins to the Warriors, you're praying for 50 from Steph in a game seven in the first round, and you're praying for Harrison Barnes to miss a three pointer just to make it to the second round, where you're probably going to get wiped out pretty quick, right? Exactly. And so that to me, like I've been arguing, I, it's it's honed for me in the last couple of days that the status quo, if I were in Mike Dunleavy's place, as weird as that is, that would actually be my base. But you know, you're listening, you're shopping, you're you're doing whatever you need to do, but. I don't know who would accept that, who wouldn't accept that. And it's, yeah, it's complicated. And speaking of not accepting the status quo, the Los Angeles Lakers. This yeah, well, seems... they never do, right? This seems... I mean, it seems perilous, doesn't it? It does. Just one, one final reason why I brought up that Kelda thing real sure, quick. Sure, of course. Um, I, I know the Lakers and the Bulls are, and maybe even the Raptors, they already made one trade, so now people are looking at the Raptors maybe to make another one. They're probably going to headline... The team is most likely to make a trade. I'll put Golden State in that uh, category as well for this trade deadline. To me, the number one team in the league that needs to make a trade is actually the San Antonio Spurs. I'm not sure how popular, maybe everybody's on board with this, but when I watch what Wemby's doing and how little help Wemby has, and that the playmakers on their team in terms of who can actually set him up for success and get him into stuff... I just roll my eyes almost every single game that I watch them, right? Because he's so talented. And you go back to a guy like Anthony Davis, his rookie year. He had a Grievous Vasquez, a perfectly competent point guard, right? Uh, the next year he had Drew Holiday, who they, you know, Pelicans went out and traded for to try to give him that inside-outside pairing. You look at Kevin Durant, and, and I'm naming Davis and Durant because I feel like they're kind of derivative players on offense. They need somebody to set them up, uh, similar to how Wimby does, whereas, you know, like a LeBron or a Luka or that kind of guy doesn't need a point guard necessarily to have a lot of success in the NBA. I think Wimby's just more in that uh, KD or Davis mold. And the idea that you're trusting his entire rookie year to Trey Jones, uh, to Sohan, and that was a disaster. Oh, my start. God. Never, never should have even been you know, uh, thought of. But it's gone about as poorly as it could go. And then, you know, no disrespect to Devin Vassell, very good player, but the guy's got blindness. He's not going to be a playmaker anytime soon, nor do you really want him to be a playmaker because it's, it's, it's not, not what his he role. does well. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. So yeah, that puts it – I'm to the point where I'm like, Wendy should play point guard for this first. <laughs> That's where I'm at. Because it's like, you know, if this is going to be the plan, at least I know the ball's in his hands if he's bringing it up the court every time. So that feels like, you know, maybe it's not Chris Paul because of the injury, but, you know, I kind of like the idea of veteran mentor. That kind of thing could be useful for San Antonio as they try to go find, like, the long-term partner for Wemby. But the tricky part for San Antonio and why they need to make a trade at the deadline, if you look at this summer's free agent point guards, there's none of the good guys are going to move to San Antonio. Like, they're all going to re-sign with their current teams. And then you look at the draft class, you know, you could talk yourself into Topic maybe, um, you know, because of how much San Antonio loves the foreign players, the international pipeline. But um, now you're waiting two or three years for him to really get up to speed. Uh, I don't like the idea of Collier at all for San Antonio, the, the USC guard. I don't think that's a fit. So you're kind of in this situation where if you don't trade for a point guard, how are you getting a point guard? And you better not have the same cast of point guards next year for Wemby that you have for him this year. You know what I mean? Like you have to make an improvement. So that's why I thought they should try to be aggressive here at the trade deadline, at least find themselves 
look, they don't have to find the next Tony Parker, but can we get an Avery Johnson, right? Like, can we get somebody like that who can at least, uh, you know, be a productive part of a group that gives San Antonio a little bit of an identity? I totally agree with you on the theory of it. And San Antonio's flexibility moving forward means that it can be a stopgap. Like, it doesn't have to be you find the person. Utah's actually running into this as a challenge, too. You don't have to find the guy for the next 10 years right now. You just need somebody for right now. And right. it would really help them. And the other trick with San Antonio here, and I, I know that you'll know this, is they could get a lot better and still be bad. So yeah. Oh, yeah. getting getting Chris Paul. Last time I checked, you know, they had the worst net rating since the, the uh, Hornets team or the Bobcats team that was taken for Anthony Davis and failed. Like, their net rating is horrible. And maybe it's a little bit better in the last couple of games, but, like, they're historically bad. So what that means from a practical perspective, especially when you combine it with lottery reform, is that's not – it's not taking – even if your primary goal is to get – a, and I don't think it should be necessarily with the Spurs – to get another really good piece around one Banyama, even if this is a shaky class, you're not killing that – if they got – well, maybe not Luca or that level of guy, but it, I even think if they got a low level all star, this team is still not very good. Like they just have a lot of work. They still have a lot of work to do. So you get a capable steward. You get somebody who can make the team watchable. Who makes the young player and like the. I don't want to go down this road too far, um, but think about how much easier it is to understand and evaluate Jabari Smith Jr., Jalen Green, and all of Houston's young guys, Tarizan if he was actually healthy enough to play more often, because they got Van Vliet and because they got Dylan Brooks. Like, it's actually, it was the biggest mistake with the Process Sixers, which I generally believed in Sam Hankey for doing it, was that they had, like, no basis to evaluate their players. And the Spurs, it doesn't have to be about this year, but within the next two, you have to know what you have. Wemby is so good. I, I think that, you know, all the hype that came in, maybe people were expecting him to average 30 and 15 or something. And so maybe there's some people out there who are disappointed. His talent level and what he does on a nightly basis is absolutely obscene for a guy who just turned 20. It is crazy how advanced he is. I mean, that game against uh, Giannis uh, the other night where he had the block at the rim of Giannis, the block at the rim of Lillard, he draws three defenders on the final possession and makes the right pass to find Trey Jones in the corner. Of course, Trey Jones misses it. Um, you know, he has the behind-the-back dunk, you know, in transition. Uh, he dunks through Brooke Lopez on another play. Like, there's 10 plays that would be some guy's best play of the entire season just packed into one random game for Webby, right? And so I think it needs to be accelerated. Like, they need to get this guy the structure you're talking about. They cannot let him just go out there and do this in these meaningless games before – a player as competitive and as skilled as him is going to get upset at some point. And Webby is such a nice guy. He's such a coachable player. He's such a good teammate. By nature, you want to make him happy. Like, don't make this more difficult than it needs to be. So um, I actually like the Pelicans' comparison a lot for how the Spurs should approach this because they're going to have a big challenge getting an all-star, all-star level player, right? You know, trying to find a Manu or a Tony just – pluck those guys out of air is going to be pretty difficult. But 
the Pelicans, you know, took a lot of crap from analysts for going a little bit too all in too fast with Anthony Davis and, you know, the Omar Ashik deal. I mean, there were some other mistakes. There's no question. But I think getting Drew Holiday for Anthony Davis was a super smart move, right? Because that you know, set it up Anthony Davis for six straight all-star appearances when he was teamed up with Drew Holiday. Over the course of the next two or three years after Holiday's arrival, even though they had some injury issues, they were able to build into a team that made the playoffs and won a playoff series. And if Anthony Davis had had more patience or more interest in being in New Orleans rather than kind of trying to force his way to a bigger market, uh, maybe they would have had even more payoff than they got. Um, so that's what I want to see San Antonio do. Like, again, you don't have to go uh, get a Hall of Famer, but if you can get a player in the next couple of years who's on the same level as a young Drew Holiday and in the, in the short term find somebody who's on the same level as like that plug-in type guy, uh, that's what they need to be doing. And um, I just don't want it to get ugly because Webby is just like this gift from the basketball gods. He's so friendly. He's so nice. Uh, he's got his feet wet. He should really be in consideration for an all-star spot. But even how bad San Antonio has been this season, he should get serious looks as an all-star candidate this year, even though he probably won't make it. And um, you can't do that twice if you're San Antonio. You know? And I think that there's been a lot of deference from the media, this idea of like, well, Pop and RC, I mean, these guys know what they're doing. They've built it before. Uh, you can live on that for a little bit, but not forever. And the NBA's changed an awful lot since Duncan came in. Came in, you know, whatever yeah, that was. It's, it, it's, years it's ago. not like a prominent lion in another sport who had a really rough end to his career. It just that that just happened and could be potential context here in in Bill Belichick, but. We'll totally. see. Yeah, so, totally. And, and, you know, Pop doesn't want to do that. Pop wants to be there. He just signed the extension. But you do have to adapt with the times. And, you know, you got to realize that, you know, the amount of patience you might have if you're Popovich is not the same amount of patience that a, a Wemby might have when he's 20 years old. And, and they should hit the fast forward button. I'm sorry, though. You wanted to talk Lakers like 10 minutes ago. Do you want to hop back on that? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I actually think in some ways the Lakers story, as we're talking about it now, is less interesting because it's just like... They haven't lived up to expectations, and especially vocal people involved are frustrated with that. And so I don't, I, I think that the, it's just going to be what move do they make rather than should they make a move, especially when you consider that LeBron and Anthony Davis have been pretty healthy and they've played well, and this team just hasn't been good enough. So the, the thing with LeBron is he's played well, but he has not played well enough to carry a championship team. And it was a Agreed. similar deal in last year's playoffs too, right? Where And he was limited by the foot in last year's playoffs, but the gap between him and Jokic in that Western Conference Finals was scary big. You know, watching those games in person, I was like, oh my God, I have never seen LeBron look like the second best guy on the court by this distance, basically probably since like his second year in the NBA or something like that, right? And by the way, that's not to pick on LeBron. It was the same thing with Jokic and Durant, the previous series, and Jokic and Jimmy in the finals, right? Like that was just, you know, said a lot about Jokic. But when you're trying to plan, okay, can this team, you know, boost into the the title contention conversation with LeBron, who's not going to be the best player on the court in a series, like a, a real series that matters, with Davis, who has been the Lakers' best player this year, has been incredibly consistent, incredibly healthy, um, you know, turning in one of the best seasons of his career, actually, I would say. Uh, from an individual standpoint, but that hasn't translated to a huge, uh, you know, winning percentage by itself. 
I think it's pretty tough. You know, the, the obvious player you would look to circle and say he probably doesn't fit and could get traded is D'Angelo Russell. But the crazy thing is, last time I checked, he was leading them in plus minus, right? So he's actually had a pretty decent season for them, too, although obviously context applies to, to that kind of analysis. So um, I don't think there was a quick fix, but I also did think there was a quick fix at last year's deadline, and they pulled a rabbit out of their hat, you know, and they made a great run down the stretch. They deserve credit for it. But trying to do that two years in a row is very difficult. And unfortunately for them, a lot of the guys who they acquired who played so great in that playoff run, especially Rui, but I would also say Vanderbilt, you know, gave them a lot down the stretch of last season. A lot of those guys have come back to earth this year. So if you were trying to flip them, you're probably getting even less than you paid for, right? I mean, maybe not in Rui's case because they didn't give up anything, but I don't think those guys have major, major trade value. And so that could, you know, limit their options a little bit. But I see this idea of like DeJounte Murray floating around. I don't get that at all from the Lakers standpoint. First of all, I don't think they have enough to give up to get him um, that Atlanta would really want. But I don't get that fit. Doesn't make a lot of sense. I could see this being kind of a leverage deal because of the clutch connections. And maybe they're just trying to, to generate a market for DeJounte Murray. But to me, that's a guy I would pass on. I definitely wouldn't do the Zach Levine trade. And I no. kind of look at anybody who, who trades for Zach Levine. I mean, they kind of get a scarlet letter for me, to be honest. Like, why would you do that? That seems like a complete mistake for just about anybody in the NBA. So if it's not going to be one of those guys, who's the impact player who does come to the Lakers slotting? to that number three role and make them a team that could push Denver. I don't think that player exists. I'm not sure that player exists. I will note, and I Nate and I talked about this a little bit on last night's dunked on, that I don't think Austin Reeves should be seen as, as untradeable. He's, you know, this year has certainly been below his standard, but he he's looking more like a normal guard rather than a special fit or anything like that. And he certainly can and likely will play better than he has so far this year. But... If there's still some sort of Lakers aura on him, then it might be better better do that. And especially considering that aura is not on some of their other guys you're talking about potential trades. I'm more on board potentially, depending on the asking price, of course, with DeJounte Murray just on the idea that his jump shot is looking closer to real. And so you can use him to run some stuff, but then you can also have him defend point of attack, which has been an issue for the Lakers, at least in terms of a guy who can actually be a viable offensive player. Like I I did broadcast the Lakers Clippers game. And while the Lakers won that game, the aggressiveness that the Clippers used to not guard Cam Reddish was incredible. And it wouldn't surprise me at all to see playoff teams do that. And Reddish, I mean, it's still a success story with how, well he's played in the Lakers rotation but the regular season is about like kind of that kind of performance but then the playoffs are about adjustments and limitations and I could see that being an issue and Vanderbilt is a very talented player but his offensive game is a huge problem they just were able to overcome it and the other kind of looming question for me with the Lakers and it's amazing how little smoke we're getting on this when you consider everything around him getting so much is I'm sure that LeBron James, his preference, I'm confident, not sure, that his preference would be to stay with the Lakers, stay in Los Angeles. But what does he really want for the remainder of his basketball life? Does he want to play with his son? Completely justified if that's what he wants to do. Does he want to play when, you know, I still think he's at an all-NBA level, but we're getting closer to that line being nil. Maybe he does. Maybe he'd rather play until his into his 40s or do something else. But as the Lakers, if the idea that you posited were like one guy isn't going to do it, 
do you consider waiting and just being like, oh man, we're throwing three resources or we're getting a guy who's making 20, 30 million a year beyond this year to fit with LeBron and we have no idea how long he's going to be here or play at this level? Yeah, so kind of what you're hinting at, would LeBron ever want to ask for a trade or would ever consider signing somewhere else in free agency or would he want to go to a different organization to have a final chapter? And, you know, people would probably circle Miami and Cleveland as like the obvious candidates because of his ties with those teams, right? Um, I haven't seen anything to indicate that. I was really wondering about that question before he signed his most recent extension because I felt like at that point it was like, well, he still knows he's got some pretty high-level basketball left in him. I think LeBron is actually pretty honest about where his game is at right now. Like, you, you heard him coming out of that Denver series. He's like, you know, I'm still better than 95% of the players in the NBA. Notice that he didn't say 99, right? He said 95, right? He gave himself a little bit of a buffer there. And I think he knows that um, he, he can't do it every single night. You mentioned the health that he's had this year. You know, the downside to that is he didn't get the month-long break that he's had in some of these previous years. And so he has to pace himself in these games because it's an 82-game season, right? And so, you know, you look last night, I mean, he was pretty bad against the Suns, right? And mm-hmm. he actually didn't even play the fourth quarter because, you know, he had a little bit of an ankle deal. But yeah, he was getting locked up by Kevin Durant full court pressing at some point, and he just didn't have it. Like, he just didn't have the legs. He couldn't do it. And so I think I default to believing LeBron will still love the L.A. limelight, the L.A. stage. He's very comfortable. He's got this entire, you know, empire practically in Los Angeles. Um, he has the influence to get Bronny onto his team, right? Like, you know, the Lakers will do that for him, I'm sure, and he has certainly earned that. And so I have a hard time thinking he will go anywhere else, but I think it is a fair question of how many seasons like this one where they're not playing for a championship before he decides, hey, it's time to retire, you know, as opposed to I need to go hop and jump and try to get to a different situation. And he was hinting last year about the idea of the mental grind of like, you know, how it's almost harder on his mind than it is on his body to play if he doesn't have like a reward at the end of the rainbow. And I think for practical reasons, he would want to stay with the Lakers. But that's going to mean either lowering his personal standards and being okay with not competing for titles longer term. Right. Or it's going to just mean, well, uh, it's time to hang it up. Right. And I think those are kind of his decisions. But I think he will certainly play a season with Bronny. And I think he'll be able to, to do that. And I would expect like 95 percent that's going to happen in L.A. So do you think that he'll do the like opt out and see? Oh, his actually, I guess his option decision is after the draft. So he would be able to find out who has who's who drafted yeah. his son before. Oh, if anybody good. besides the Lakers get Bronny in the draft, um, I, that's like an apocalypse, man. Can you imagine? <laughs> like, honestly, like we should, I think you should like have a countdown clock for that. That would be absolutely nuts. And I think he said that sometimes, you know, he just wants to be on the court with Bronny. Like there's some, uh, you know, hint that like, oh, if we could just play against each other in the same game, that would still be good. But I don't know. Like, I, I just hearing these stories for more than 10 years now about how much he just revered Ken Griffey Jr. and Ken Griffey Sr. for being able to play on the same team. And having that moment together, not to mention the scary episode with Bronny last summer and how proud LeBron has been of him getting back on the court. I just think, like, you know, draft Bronny at your own risk, right? Like, (laughs) feel the wrath of LeBron if you you, uh, try to take him before the Lakers can. Yeah, that's going to be a a huge story to watch. Um, Last thing for you before we go. 
I try to end a fair amount of pause this way. What teams, what situations are you going to be watching over the next couple weeks? Oklahoma City Thunder. Uh, number one with a bullet, number two with a bullet, number three with a bullet. Um, I think they have a chance to make a deep run in this year's playoffs. I do, you too. Know, I, I watched that Celtics game, and I'm like, holy crap, they could win the championship this year. Yeah, and like I've been really trying to hold myself back from, from going there because can you imagine how cool that would be if they actually won the title? Like It feels a little bit too good to be true, so I don't want to put any of that pressure on them. I don't want to put any of that jinx feeling on myself. You know what I mean? Like I just want it to unfold naturally, but we're, they we're, are we're, so... Like, we're not this yeah. lucky as as like basketball. <laughs> like For, for all, all of what that that would entail for it to happen. I also like. I said they could. I, I'm. Not, they're not my most likely champion or anything like that. Right, right, right. No, no. I, I hear you. I'm just like I am. You know, I'm treating it like a hot stove, and I'm not going to touch it because uh, I just. Oh man, it would be so cool if it happened. But I just think you know they still don't get enough attention. Of course, I think they have a really good chance at least of making the conference finals. I think they match up really well with a lot of the teams who are in the second and third tier. And if I was one of these older teams that was trying to like talk myself into like, hey, we could just make a playoff push, you know, I'm talking about the Suns, the Lakers, the Warriors kinds of teams. That's not who I would want to play in the first round is the Thunder, right? Because like last year, the Grizzlies didn't have their stuff together. So they were pretty slim pickings or easy pickings for the Warriors, right? Or sorry, for the Lakers, I should say. Um, the Kings were a little bit too happy to be there. I don't think the Thunder are going to be happy to be there. And I don't think that they'll be like so dysfunctional off the court that they get in their own way. So that to me is like almost a nightmare matchup for one of these veteran teams. Uh, if, if you're looking at who might have a really good seed, but, you know, be predicted as like kind of an upset type team. Um, so that's why I'm watching them. It's just like, do they make a trade at the deadline? Does Presti believe that they're good enough to go all in with? Now, probably not because he's the most patient executive in the league. But you look at their net rating. Last time I checked, it was better than plus nine. When you're in that zone, that means you should be a buyer typically at the trade deadline. And he could buy all sorts of incredible players if he wanted to, if he decided that now was the moment. So I think they're fun to watch before February 6th. And I think they're going to be really, really fun to watch after February 6th. And I think there's a really good chance that they're sort of like the casuals favorite team when we hit the playoffs. Like I could see them, you know, getting one of these high profile first round matchups. Let's say it's uh, Thunder Lakers, Thunder Suns. They win it. And then just like all of NBA Twitter and all of these like casual fans are just like the Thunder are now my favorite team. Like we're all in, chase the man, chase the man. And, you know, we're just kind of riding that wave, you know, into May. Super fun team to watch, very well coached, and as you mentioned, I don't know if Sam Presti's going to do it. The resources that they could bring to bear if they wanted to <laughs> to add yeah. to add things is terrifying. And and like so they could no one is the only thing that they don't really have, depending on which of their current players they'd be willing to include, is like the true premium assets. Like they don't because their picks aren't good enough, and unfortunately for them, they don't have like the equivalent of those Nets picks because the Rockets did, did so much better and everything else. But the volume, the young players they could potentially include, like the whole world is open to them. And I don't know that it's going to come this year. I don't know that it's going to come at all. But I also honestly don't even know if they need it on the big scale. Like, I, I don't know if the second or third best Thunder player is someone they need to bring in. Fourth or fifth, probably either internal or external. But that's a pretty good problem to have if that's where you are. Oh, 100%. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is, like, they could outbid anyone for any player who's available at this year's trade deadline, 
and that player still probably wouldn't be one of the top three guys in their pecking order, right? Because it, it's of, unreal. Uh, Chet, Shea, and Jay, Jay Will. Like, when do you see that? You know, my, my craziest, so, my craziest idea wouldn't be this year is Zion. Um, I don't think that's that crazy. You know, like I don't, I don't think like today, and he would actually fit pretty well with Chet. So, and um, not a high yeah. pressure media market if that's something he's interested in. No, and a friendly fan base, right? Who would yeah. welcome him with open arms? So Absolutely. yeah, I, it, it'd be pretty interesting. Okay, well, I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure as always, Danny. Take care, man. Thanks again to Ben Golver for taking the time to come on. You can read his excellent work at the Washington Post. You can also check out his book, Bubble Ball, if you have not yet already. And you can check out The Greatest of All Talk, which is the great podcast that he does with Andrew Sharp. If you want to support this show, there are a lot of different things you can do. You can subscribe and download every episode. And for Real Jam Radio, that is useful because it's never going to come out on a specific day of the week. And hey, some weeks we're going to have two episodes like we did this week. So whatever podcast player that is, you can put it in there. And if we're not somewhere that you would like us to be, let me know. And I'll try to pass that along the chain to somebody who can actually do something about it. You can also help other people find the show, and that's leaving a rating and review, that's social media, that's word of mouth, however you want to do it, really do appreciate it. But the most important thing you can do for Real GM Radio and any other podcast that has them is to check out our sponsors. For us, that is FanDuel, fanduel.com slash Boston. New customers get $150 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet. Talked about that at length earlier in the pod. You can also check out my other work, Dunked On and Dunked On Prime with Nate Duncan are going really well. We started our trade deadline previews, but then gamers and 15 and 60s and everything else. Written work at The Athletic and then doing what's called the NBA Strategy Stream, which is League Pass broadcast with Nate. We do that roughly once a week. We'll be back Sunday doing Kings at Bucks, which is at 7 Eastern, 4 Pacific. Can check that out. Really fun to do all of those in honor for the NBA to have us do that. And then we'll do some on playback. I don't know the timing of our next broadcast there, but you can keep an eye on socials and you should be able to see it. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That's an absolute promise. Not the greatest at replying, especially with my other obligations, but I try. And that's why I I promise you what I will do, and I tell you honestly what I might do. And that is all for now. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.